1: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, one of your co-hosts. I'm here with just Max Linsky, my other co-host. Aaron is off today. Hi, Max. Hi, Evan. Uh, Aaron is off, and also my children are off, and they just walked into this room. So if you hear some children in the background, those are those are my kids. Love to have children participate in the show. One day, Evan, they'll go to school. One day. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long summer. Who is on the show this week? My guest this week is Graciela Moschkovsky. She's a highly accomplished journalist. She's written from and about the Americas, all over the Americas, Latin America, the US. She is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and she's also written a stack of books in Spanish. And her most recent book is her first book that's being published first in English. It's called The Prophet of the Andes. I love this book, and I wanted to talk to her about it. It's basically the story of this carpenter in Peru who discovers a Bible at age 17 and then embarks on this pretty extraordinary spiritual quest that eventually it leads him and it leads followers who gather around him all the way to Israel. And it's a kind of, it's a narrative book, but it's also a kind of many layered book. I was excited to explore those layers with her. And I should also note that she just started as the dean of the CUNY Journalism School here in New York. So we talked about that some too. It was a great conversation. Wow. I had no idea uh, what her book was about. It sounds totally fascinating. And I was thinking while you were talking about it, like, if you gave me like a million guesses what her book was about, I don't think I could have come up with that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say is, if you dig into it, you will not stop. All I can say is that we make this show in partnership with Vox, thanks to them. And now here's Evan with Graciela Moshkowski. Graciela, welcome to the Longform Podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I am catching you at what I can only imagine is an extremely busy time because I know it's the beginning of the school year at CUNY J School where you've recently taken the reins as the dean and you have a book out. How crazy is your life right now?
2: It is. It's crazy, but I I like crazy. So it's very intense and very exciting and uh, it's all good news all the time. So even I'm a problem solver. So. I, I love it. I'm actually enjoying it very much. It's very busy, but that's fine. That's the job.
1: <laughs> so I want to talk about the book because remarkably, it appears from the book that you first came across this idea in 2003. Is that correct?
2: Long time ago. <laughs> Almost 20 years.
1: Almost 20 years. So describe to me sort of uh, where you were and what you were doing in your career when you when you first came upon this idea. And then we'll talk a little bit more about what the books about
2: So 2003, I was a political reporter in Buenos Aires. My second book was about to come out, and uh, this was a biography of Jacobo Timerman. Jacobo Timerman was this legendary editor and publisher in Argentina who had gone into exile um, during our last military dictatorship and become a human rights hero. And so I, writing about him, I started reading. Uh, he was Jewish and he was a Zionist and he ended up in Israel in exile. And so I started studying about the history of Judaism and Israel and Zionism, and the, the the specific reality of being Jewish in South America and Latin America. So I had just finished the book, it was about to come out, I had quit my job as a political reporter in a major newspaper in Buenos Aires, and I wanted to read more about Judaism and Latin America. My father is Jewish, he's third generation Argentine, and his family comes from Eastern Europe mostly. And my mother is a Catholic woman from Paraguay, uh, religious. Uh, my father is an atheist. And so th- those two identities, Judaism and Catholicism, my mom uh, raised me and one of my brothers as Catholic and sent me to non-school. And I had felt that upbringing and that school and the religious you know, education as a very oppressive thing in my life. And I had moved away from that when I finished high school. But with Timmerman, I really reconnected with this um, Jewish side of my life. And I I was really curious about that experience. Latin America was and is still very much a Christian region. And it was until 30 years ago, uh, a monopoly of the Catholic Church. And so Jewish communities were very small in most of Latin America and tiny and not really integrated into what most people understand as latin america and so i really wanted to know more that was kind of the idea i had and i wanted to know more about that and i was looking for for information in, on the internet and i came upon this Letter. You know how things never die in the internet? Like they survive, they drift away, and you know, it's like this message in a bottle or something. And I and I found this old letter from a rabbi from Monsey, New York. This is a Hasidic town, upstate New York. I didn't know what it was then. And this was a rabbi who was telling the story of this man, segundo Villanueva, who had gone through this process of conversion to from Catholicism to Judaism and brought a whole community with him, and they were now living in Israel. And at the bottom of the letter, there was a phone number for people who wanted to donate to this community. So he was raising money for the community, and uh, I was just sitting in Buenos Aires at home, and I just ran to the phone, and I called the number, and and this woman uh, picked up. Uh, he immediately, as you probably have already noticed, I have a, a Spanish accent, and so she she switched to Spanish, and and we started talking, and she was the widow. The rabbi had uh, died, and she was one of the converts of the Segundo Vision Nueva community. And she had been living in Monsey for a few years now. And she said, would you like me to give you the phone numbers of Segundo's family? They are, you know, in Israel, you can call them. And so that's how it started. And I was fascinated immediately by the story. 15 days later, I was in Tapuach, which is the settlement in the West Bank where they were living. And, And then, you know, I did five other books. In 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 the meantime, I had a child, I became an immigrant, I moved to New York, I, you know, I did other things. Um, but on and off I just kept going back to the story. It's hard to do an international story that requires travel when you are in the global south, when you are, you know, and, and you know, there's no fellowships, there's no grants. So it took also a lot of time just to raise funds to spend time, the time I needed to spend in Israel and the West Bank and Peru. And then Colombia and other places where this book has taken me.
1: And I want to go back one one step. You said you quit your you had just quit your job at the newspaper. What had led you to to quit and decide to go off on your own at that time?
2: Wow, that that requires a full hour of understanding the realities of uh, journalism outside of the U.S. Um, but basically, I was a, a political reporter with a high profile, and in my country. You know, I've always seen it like this, like media and particularly independent media has just very short windows to exist. And then there's new, there's a new government or there's a new publisher who kind of closed these windows because the paper is now aligned with the government or does not want to be against the government. So they don't want critical voices. So it became really hard. It was one of those moments in which windows closed where just writing the truth and being uh, a a critical journalist, a critical of the government became really hard. So I decided to write books where I could have independence. And I decided that I wanted to just trying to be, a. it's really hard to be a freelancer uh, there. So I started teaching and doing my books. And then I ended up going to the Niemann with a fellowship. And then I came back here with another fellowship, trying to sustain my work. And then I stayed here.
1: All this time you've got what became this book, The Prophet of the Andes, kind of in the background. How often did you find yourself returning to it? When would you pick it up along the way?
2: Every time I could travel, you know, it really it really took. So part of the work was just to spend more time with the people who have been, you know, this is the book of a reporter. So reporting and being and spending time with Segundo's family and the community and going back and to ask the same questions again and trying to get it right you know, I did it every time I could. And so I would just get chunks of time, months that I would be able to travel and stay abroad. At one point I realized, so I did a first try. I did, there was a first version in Spanish of this book that came out in Argentina in 2006. That was a failed try, in my opinion now. At that time, I did have a lot of the information from the sources, but I did not have the historical context, you know, the story is full of twists and turns and the story doesn't have just one ending. The story ends and then it continues and then it ends and then it continues and then it ends. So the first time I thought it ended the first time, (laughs) you know. So the story is this man from this hamlet in the Andes, he loses his father. This is 1944. His father is murdered by a neighbor. They have nothing left except for one Protestant Bible that the son, Segundo, finds in the bottom of a trunk. And uh, they don't know why this Bible is there. They were all Catholic and they were not supposed to have a Bible at home. The Bible was read by the priest in church on Sundays. And Segundo starts reading. And his life is transformed by this reading of this book. And he spends the rest of his life just reading and rereading and rereading. So he first realizes that the people of God, is they have a name and the name is Israel. And then he goes from Catholicism to Protestant. He starts looking in, in the Protestant movements that are just arriving in the Andes. He keeps reading and then his questions are not answered. And so he decides to create his own church and he names it Israel of God. And he moves almost 100 people to the Amazon jungle from the Andes to live in isolation and just read the Bible and study. And they move out of the jungle because that was too hard. They go to this Pacific Ocean town, Trujillo, and they live there for 20 years as Orthodox Jewish by just reading these books that they find that are translated into Spanish. And finally, they get this connection with uh, Israel and they get the great rabbi to agree to convert them and take them out of Peru. I thought, oh, this is the end. They, get, they go to Israel and Segundo dies there, right? And it, this is a success story for them. But then what happened is that after the book, that version of the book came out, I started getting all these email and uh, Facebook messages from people who were still in in South America, mostly in Colombia and Peru, who had read this book and actually were part of like the the aftermath of the story because they were also trying to convert. And there were hundreds of people now who were kind of following on Segundo's paths I started going to those communities and see what's happening. And I realized there was a whole phenomena in Latin America. It it took a lot of time because also these, you know, the sources, all these people were very discreet and reserved and they didn't know me. And, you know, I had to earn their trust. And that means spending a lot of time with people. And then the final piece is that I needed to come here to do this fellowship at the Coleman Center in the New York Public Library. That year was really important for the book as it, Exists today because that's when I brought kind of the scaffolding, like this infrastructure. Because the story is only clear, I think, when you understand the context of Catholicism in Peru, Judaism in Peru, the history of Jewish conversion. I didn't have a deep understanding of of all of those things before I, I did this fellowship. So I wasn't really ready to write the story as it, I think, deserved to be told after that period. So I really started rewriting and writing this in 2014, when when I finished that fellowship.
1: One of the things that I really connected with in the book, which surprised me a little bit, I didn't expect there to be so much theology woven into it. I mean, it makes sense once you've read it, but I, I grew up around a lot of evangelical Christians, and I found that the questions that Segundo had about the New Testament and the contradictions and the different versions. Like I identified with that. Obviously I didn't take it to the level that he did where he set off on a lifelong spiritual journey, but I wondered if there was any way in which that was true for you. Was he more of like a fascinating subject for you or was there something in that questioning in his life that you in particular connected with?
2: What I like about that is it connects with me as a journalist, actually. Uh, It's this idea of the, of just seeking truth and how elusive that is so this is a person who thinks he can get to the true meaning of God and of you know how he needs to live and he thinks that by asking the right questions and by reading and reading and reading and by discussing collectively he can get to the to the truth and he can't so I, I remember this is a completely different story and subject, but I think it will explain what I'm trying to say. I read this beautiful book about Mars and exploration of Mars. The Silence of Mars is one of the most beautiful nonfiction books I read. This, it came out two years ago. And it's this writer, she's a, she's a scientist and she's an expert on Mars. And she also, she writes the history of the exploration of Mars. And at the end, what you understand is that we are not capable of Understanding the the truth of the universe, and we're just scratching the surface always you know it's just so hard just to get to Mars. It took all this time and this money and this investment, and every time we go it might fail, and then you know and then the the rocket we send just explodes, and then the next one just dies there, and then the next one keeps orbiting and can't reach the planet you know, and what she says is that we are not equipped, our minds are not equipped to see more than, it's like we only always, always see through this crack, there's this canvas and you see through the crack and you just see a little bit. And to me, that is a very moving idea as a journalist who's, you know, I've been trained to try to get to the truth with the methodology that journalism gives you. And, and you always are, every time I write something, I'm thinking, you know, I've talked to everyone. I came back, I fact-checked and but what if there was someone whose perspective was needed to really understand what happened and i didn't i don't know about that person or what if the person lied to me what if everybody conspired to lie to me you know what if what if i can't understand it because i don't have the sensibility and i am actually an, interpreting something that is not the way they interpreted it you know so that to me is fascinating about his story that he was convinced that he could find it and he would just spend his life trying to get to the bottom of it. So that that's one thing. The other one is that I, I thought the story was beautiful because I thought it was kind of a story out of Borges, you know, Jorge Luis Borges, the wonderful Argentinian writer, um, in which, you know, the, there's a man who opens a book and then the book takes over and creates a whole world for this man. So it's it's Segundo trying to get to the bottom of this book and really understand how he needs to leave because the message is in the book. But then at one point, you know, soon, you know, soon after he starts actually doing this, the book starts creating the world for him, you know, in a way. So, and it shapes his understanding of, of everything he does and sees. So I thought that was also very beautiful as a story. And I think our job as journalists is, at least the way I see it is just, you know, this effort to try to understand how people live because living is just so hard. And so this is my seventh book. And I follow one rule when I, when I work on a book, it's you really, really need to love the story. You really need to be invested in the story because you're going to spend so much time and you're going to have to read that manuscript 75 times. So you better really love the story. And I really love Segundo and his community and, and, and what they did. And I think it gives us as people who did not go through that process, it gives us a glimpse into, I don't know, life and and meaning that um, I didn't have in my life. And I, I think my life is richer because I know their story.
1: You had mentioned earlier having to earn the trust of this community, you know, his family, people who are left. And how do you do that over such a long period of time without also sort of uh, becoming so close to them that you lose that distance?
2: I think that is training, really. You know, we're we're trained to do I've been doing this since 1991. So I think that was harder when I was younger. You know, there's always this risk that people, um, particularly if you're a middle-class writer and you're writing about uh, impoverished communities or communities that are marginalized, they're not anymore because they've been, you know, Israeli citizens for a long time and now they're part of a middle class there. But... I just, you know, I just want to always establish a relationship in when there's no, there's the rules are very clear. And so, you know, I'm going to write about this. People will know this is going to be a public story. Are you sure you won't talk about this? I mean, and, and at the same time, I want them to talk about it. So um, But, you know, to make sure they know, okay, this is what, you know, you you, you have to recreate completely or establish a, a pact, right? You know, they don't, you know, when when you talk to people who are not, trained to talk to the media. They don't know what off the record means and what is that agreement. That is an agreement you make with people who are used to talking to journalists. And and so just, you know, having that said and then making sure it's not an extractive, a purely extractive um, exercise so that there's also a value to them to see. And, you know, what's the motivation of understanding people's motivations to talk to us? Why do people talk to us at all? Why, you know, I've been a journalist since I'm eight years old. I've always wanted to do do this. I started doing interviews in my little town to the firemen when I was eight. And I very soon, you know, not when I was eight, but when I was in my 20s, I realized that motivation is just so critical because why do people talk to a journalist or to a writer? And I think there's this desire of other people to know about them. And I think in this case, there's so many people now, there's this whole movement in Latin America and outside of Latin America too of people looking for meaning in religion. And there's so many people converting from, to, to all kinds of religions. And there there are all these groups now that are doing similar process than Segundo and his community. So for them, it's really important to know that someone did it before and how it worked out and what were the issues. Um, so, you know, I just also... You know, make sure people understand the impact of sharing their stories with others and how powerful that can be, and how amazing that can be if it's told correctly.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant. And I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
1: You know, when you were writing books in Argentina and doing your own journalism, at what point did you start writing for English language media? What led to that transition?
2: So I really started writing In English, in 2014, when we decided after a year with this fellowship in the New York Public Library that we were going to stay here. And I started writing a piece about a lost first edition of Borges for the Paris Review.
1: I read that. That one's got some twisted turns.
2: Right, exactly. I love the twists and turns. Um, And uh, then I did a piece for The Atlantic about Kissinger and Argentina and Argentina. And then uh, Nick Thompson, who was then the editor of the uh, New Yorker Online, he read that piece on Borges and he reached out saying he wanted me to write for the uh, New Yorker. And so I did a first piece on, I think Obama was visiting Argentina or something, and I wrote about that. And then I did a piece about this amazing story of this Mexican writer who was in a war with his publishers. So that so he did not want them to publish his Book, and so he was fighting the publishers to stop the publication of his book, and it was a, just a crazy story and, and, and a great story about being a writer in Mexico. And so, and then I started, and then a year ago I would just pitch them stories, and and they would or they would ask me to write about something. And last year they offered me to have this monthly column about Latino or Latinx uh, issues. So I have this. Um, I'm late this month. I don't think they've noticed yet, uh, but I'm, uh, it's very, um, it's just such a different experience. It's really hard. It's like pulling teeth actually, because writing doesn't come easily. I mean, I'm, I'm a slow writer and I just, I need to do a draft and another draft and another draft. I, I'm one of those people that do, you know, trial and error type of things, So not efficient in the, I'm very efficient in everything else, but not in the writing. Um, but In English, it's just, um, it gives you, it constrains you. It's like like not being able to move your hands or something. But at the same time, it forces you to be really, really precise because you do not, I don't have the language to make it longer than it needs to be. I have to be very direct and precise. And so it creates a different writer in a way. It's sparser and more to the point. Because I don't know the words to, to make me to give the, any, you know, uh, I don't know, gravy to it. So it comes like just the bare bones. And that's what I can do.
1: <laughs> do you look at your writing in English and in your mind say, this is how I would have written it if I wrote it in Spanish?
2: No, what I'm doing now, because I don't have the time to do long drafts and rewrite them, what I do now is that my first draft is always in Spanish. So when I want to say, I, I think, oh, this is a beautiful sentence, but it, of course it always comes you know, up in Spanish in my mind. So what I'm doing now is just, I write it in Spanish instead of stopping and trying to just do the same in English and find the beautiful words and the right. English has this beautiful thing that, it has so many words, and the precision is wonderful. We don't have that in Spanish in the same way. So you use more words, and you use images in a different way, and it's beautiful in a in a different way. But in English, you have the words, except that I can't. They come don't come to my mind when I need them, and. And I don't know where to find them. I'm lost because I only have them in Spanish and sometimes not even that. So what I do is I'm now I'm doing my drafts and you just start the sentence in English and you end it in Spanish or you just use the word because that's how the mind works. They they find the mind. I read a lot about this, that your mind will find the shortest shortcut or the shortest road to the word. And so if the word is shorter in Spanish or or works better for your mind, then it will give it to you in Spanish and not in English. And then I kind of translate the Spanish into English. Why do I do this? I should stop writing English. (laughs) (laughs) It's just too hard.
1: (laughs) Well, it's working. The, The end product is working. So I don't think you should mess with it. But you also, I mean, you started this whole bilingual journalism program at CUNY in 2016. And what first brought you into teaching? It seems like you got pulled into really... Obviously, now being incredibly involved with journalism education. So, what what was the attraction?
2: So, uh, well, the, the reason was I was teaching in Argentina already, and I was teaching in Argentina because I needed to live, and uh, I couldn't work as I for the reasons I mentioned. I didn't want to work as a journalist in a newsroom anymore because I didn't feel I could do the journalism I wanted. So, teaching was a way of getting a paycheck, and but I loved it. I love the mentoring part, and I like the editing part. So, But I did that for a few years in Argentina, and then I came here, and I was not looking for a teaching position. And it wasn't a teaching position, really. What I found was it's really an administrative position. uh, I was hired to launch the first bilingual master's program at the Newmark J. School at CUNY. And so this is a great uh, school. I'm not saying this because I'm the dean.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You have to say it now.
2: It has the benefit of being the truth, um, which is great. But I I fell in love with the school and the community the day I walk into this building. The building is beautiful, and I thought, oh, this is where my people are. I mean, the community inside looks exactly like outside, and you know, it's it's just so diverse. People speak different languages. There's a lot of people who are first generation or immigrants. You know, a lot of our students are students of color. A lot of our students come with amazing backgrounds and bring so much value to into journalism and journalism and journalism schools are not diverse places are not places that represent the richness of american life and so this school is so to me that was really important because i felt that i had found a place of belonging in the city quickly and so i launched the program i had to teach a class but mostly what i had to do was to create a new program hire professors. I'm gonna bore you now because it's all this administrative work that I have to do, which I actually find I, I love it because it's problem solving and creating. And there's a creativity in launching a program and figuring out what it should be, what should we be teaching, you know, creating the syllabus and creating all this infrastructure was really I loved it. I, I thought it was fun and and I could do it. And it's easier than writing in any case. So anything is easier than writing. So I thought, oh my God, I can do that. And then my former dean, Sarah Bartlett, who was an amazing dean, uh, decided to retire. And so I just went for that and I somehow, uh, I got it. And I just started the first, August the 1st. So today's my first month and I haven't messed up yet. So I hope, <laughs> I hope I'll be fine. I mean, and the school <laughs> will be fine.
1: But is that something you could have ever imagined for yourself when you were just working as a, as a writer that you would be running a, program like this?
2: Never. No. I'm like an arrow that goes straight to the target. Uh, I've known what I wanted all my life, and I usually know what I want. But I re- realized that I, I'm still going towards the target, but it's not a straight line. It's a meandering line full of stops and shortcuts. And I see life like that now. So I you know, I always wanted to be a journalist, and uh, and then I wanted to be a political reporter, and I was. And then I wanted to be a political columnist. And my dream... 20 years ago, was to be the best political columnist in Argentina. There were no women who were columnists. So that was kind of groundbreaking in that way. But also, I thought I was better than the others. <laughs> Don't tell them. But I really, you know, I really thought I could make a difference. And and I loved it. And I was I'm very, you know, I really care about politics. And my country is very rich in political intrigue and complications. And So that's what I wanted to do. I never thought I was going to end up in New York being the dean of a journalism school. And if you have told me, I would have thought you're drunk or something. Uh, uh, But, you know, I'm just so happy with this. Um, I'm very proud of this school. I, I found, I think this is exactly where I want to be now and what I want to do. And I think the role of a journalism school at this moment is just so critical. I think, you know, the industry is going through a series of existential crises and real crises and financial crisis. And we have, you know, authoritarianism is on the rise and disinformation campaigns are a real threat. Democracy is really now, for the first time in a long time, not being taken for granted in this country. And the role of journalism as a public service industry or, you know, profession is just so critical. And I think one good thing that's coming out of this is that the public mission part of it and the public service is back at the center of the conversation about news and journalism and journalism education. And I think that's very valuable. And because I come from a background and a life experience in which I never took journalism for granted, I grew up in a dictatorship. So, you know, my editors in my first newsroom, they had all been, you know, in exile and they had come back because we finally had democracy again. They have lost a lot of people. My husband grew up in exile, um, and, you know, with his family being persecuted. So I think just to to have that approach that this is something that you fight for and that you keep and that you and that we can actually I think there's an opportunity. I don't you know, I'm not ignorant of the actual uh, issues like, you know, there's, you know, local media is disappearing fast and salaries are very low in most newsrooms and people can barely make a living in a lot of uh, places uh, being a journalist. And a lot of outlets are struggling to survive. And at the same time, we have, there's this wealth disparity where these outlets making more revenue than ever and reaching more people than ever. So, and there's these new outlets sprouting. There's these efforts of replanting local news that are very interesting. And the nonprofit sector is very interesting. So all of that to say that I think also we have the opportunity to make an industry that might be better than it was before. You know, it's been very, it hasn't been, as diverse as it should have been. It has failed communities of color in this country, uh, you know. So the conversation is really now, I think, broader and more complete than it was in the past because it's it's now, you know, looking at the possibilities and, and the mission. And, and, and I'm very excited to be a part of that uh, here now.
1: And, the, I mean, there's always, uh, these days, I mean, there is a strong strain of sort of cynicism and apocalyptic thinking i think among people who are already in journalism do you feel like now running the j school that is it you who is supposed to deliver optimism to the students who arrive there about their future or are they the ones that give you optimism because they keep arriving and wanting to do it
2: right this is a really good question i think my my job is to convey the excitement and just to you know i believe in journalism education and i believe people should go and new people should go into journalism and, and try to f- help us fix the, the problems that it has. So I really believe in this. So first, you know, just to have people with this amazing sense of mission and who are really um, determined to to do this and who want to invest in this is, is wonderful. And I think that, you know, teaching, the, the one thing that teaching teaches you or gives you is that the knowledge that you teach as much as you learn in the process, the process of teaching is as much as a process of learning. So you give, but you take so much from the people you're teaching, the students. But of course, you know, it is my job to say, okay, you know, be realistic. These are the conditions, but let's look at the whole picture. Let's look at options that were not on the table before and let's see how we can make this better. And I find that very exciting and I certainly see my students do too. And they do great. I mean, we have, we are a young school. We've been around for 15 years, but you know, our alumni are doing great work. Many of them are part of this new generation that is really change makers, not just practitioners.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you for all the time. I really appreciate it.
2: It was a pleasure. Take care.
1: That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to Graciela for coming on the show. Her book is called The Prophet of the Andes. It is out now. Our editor this week is Jackie Sajiko. Our intern is Megan Valley. My co hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. We produce this show in partnership with Vox. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.